I'm Mallory Rubin. And I'm Van Lathan. Check out the Ringerverse podcast from The Ringer for all things superhero movies, nerd culture, and fandom entertainment. We have instant reviews and fun takes on all the latest news and more available now on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast in Ring RFC. I'm Musa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? Long time no see. Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, man. All of 48 hours since we last. <laughs> Good weekend. Well, actually, spent half it in bed with a... <laughs> I was ill. I was just ill. I've been testing every day because I've felt a little bit ropey. But I think it's probably just end of the season syndrome. Yeah, I think I just, just a bit run down generally. Nothing to complain about. Weather is spectacular in the city. Had a nice walk through the park the other day. Uh, well, we hope everyone else is staying safe, staying well. Righty's House is back this week. We will save the Women's Super League stuff for Righty's House. Flo and Ian are going to be chatting to Chloe Kelly. Amazing. And then Callum Jacobs is going to join to talk about a new formation, a book which you have written an essay in. I have indeed. So that'll go up on the Ring or Sea feed Wednesday. Stadia will be back Thursday. There is a North London derby, a pivotal one on Thursday evening though, so we need to decide what we do with that. Mm. Other than that, make sure you check the ringer.com forward slash soccer. My clock piece went up on Friday. Uh, have you got anything else coming up? Uh, not in an immediate sense, but it's now got me thinking I should probably get the laptop out. I feel like there's stuff I need to say again, want to say again, both in short form and long form. So Musa Ogwonga has something to say. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. When you put it like that. Yeah. Not all right backs could melt still be. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, it's getting to the end of the season, the business end of the season. It is indeed. So I'm yeah. sure there'll be plenty of stuff going up. Narrative. Yeah, FA Cup yeah. finals coming up. You've got European finals coming up. You've got ugh. all sorts. Yeah. It's all going on. So today we're going to focus mainly on the Premier League because it was pretty pretty pivotal again this weekend in the Premier League but I reckon before we do should we touch on some other stuff that happened this weekend yeah yeah definitely uh, Wolfsburg regained the Frauen Bundesliga and how a mighty mighty win saw them clinch the title with game to go right yeah game to go four points clear now of Bayern 10-1 against Carl Zeiss Jena and how many different goal scorers <laughs> well 10 different goal scorers 9 different Wolfsburg goal scorers and 1 on goal from Carl Zeiss Jena. yeah so that was a tough day out for Carl Zeiss uh, but Wolfsburg just they've been on an absolute tear ever since pretty much that Champions League game against Chelsea when they turned around their season they've just been on a run since then and they're looking good for next year it's exciting to see what they'll what they'll do they've brought in a couple of really strong recruits so Europe's elite will be looking over Europe's elite being, in this case, just Lyon, I would say, and Barcelona in that final. They'll be very much looking over their shoulders at Wolfsburg, I think. They haven't dropped points in the league since the 11th of December when they drew away at Leverkusen. Extraordinary. That league this year has been a little bit more competitive than it has in recent years. Bayern obviously won the league last year and it kind of prompted talks of power shifts and stuff like that. And I think the way that they've responded this season has been really admirable, especially while maintaining a deep Champions League run. Yeah. The way they've integrated new signings really impressive as well, really, really fast too. And they've also been without a lot of players for key points of the season as well, or key players for a lot of points of the season, like Alex Pop has been out for a while, Eva Payor has been out for a while, they've lost Lena Oberdorf recently, and yeah. they've kind of managed it pretty well. And it's it's encouraging for Wolfsburg, I think. 
that second leg specifically against Barter, I think will give them real encouragement for next season if with the additions and hopefully maintaining full squad fitness. Yeah. That shows them that they can push the very, very elite teams in Europe all the way, really. We've talked about that tie being lost in the first leg. So this was really important for them as well. Obviously, German Cup final coming up as well. Very much so, yeah. On uh, women's football still, just staying with that. Um, so Barcelona, for mainly, they've got one game left. And this, if they win this, they'll go the whole season winning every game. The one, I suppose, like drawback is, is against Atleti. Um, Who upset them last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's going to be interesting. That's just the one thing I've noticed, I think, from that league really at the moment. Um, but I thought it was just worth a mention, just to keep an eye on that result. Because it's... Uh, mm. Fantastic. Goal difference is plus almost 150, I think, at the moment, which is just wow. wild. Yeah. Uh, staying in Spain, in La Liga, it was a Madrid derby Sunday night. That was kind of a bit of a weird experience as a whole. So because weird, so weird. But there was a moment which kind of encapsulated Real Madrid's whole approach to this derby when Casemiro came off. Real Madrid were 1-0 down at this point. And Carlo Ancelotti and Casemiro were having a right old laugh about something. <laughs> I was like, you're 1-0 down in the derby. With half an hour to go. This game was so confusing. I'm glad you mentioned the weirdness. This game was so confusing because I watched this late and um <laughs> sending on Modric because you're kind of like actually they're making us look bad. You yeah. know, it's almost like it's like dad, dad. <laughs> they're all sitting on the bench like Modric and like, you know, Benzema, like the old uh, young bloods out there, don't embarrass us. <laughs> Well, Aleti were good value for the win, actually. Probably should have been more. Um, oh, they should have been out of sight, man. They missed so many good chances. Like, the penalty, they went 1-0 up with a penalty. The foul on Mateus Cunha, which at first looks super soft. And then you watch again, and like, oh my goodness, that's absolutely oh my a God, penalty. He's still, yeah, he's still, <laughs> trying to climb over his back. <laughs> and it stood on his foot yeah. as well. Uh, Carrasco put the penalty away. But then Carrasco had that one shot late in the game where he hit the post, the bottom left-hand post. Yeah, in and out, yeah. Griezmann had a couple of chances where he really should have put away. Yeah, he was. He passed up one, very unselfishly passed one up. I think he should have gone solo with it. Mm. Um, but great feet, great footwork to make the chance. He looked good actually when he came on. He did look good. Um, for Atleti, that was super important because it opened up a six-point gap on Betis in fifth with three games to go because Betis on Saturday night lost to Barca. A result which secured Champions League qualification for Barcelona. Good game there, actually. This was a great game. Good game that Betis brought oh. it. Betis brought it, but so, so did Ansu Fati. And I was watching, I mean, I got absolutely rewarded for watching this late because um, the winning goal from Jordi Alba is, I mean, to score a winning goal like that to achieve Champions League qualification after the season they've had was so cathartic and it was a stunning, like, it was almost like, I don't know if the, the players themselves are stunned by it, but I certainly, when it went in, I was like, has he actually done that? Like, he does this thing, Jordi Alba, where obviously, like, we've talked about it, like, um, someone sent an amazing tweet saying, Jordi Alba is the perfect fullback, the perfect left back to have when Barcelona control the game. The only problem is they don't often control the game against big teams. And the better the team plays as collective, the more his attacking flair is liberated. And every so often, he's done it before this, he doesn't once... Every so often he does a thing like that. He does a thing that like pretty much no other left back in the world can do. Who's that amazing goal he scored against that like looping volley this season as well? Beautiful into the top yes, corner. Yes, yes. I can't remember who it was against now. But it was an, I think it was quite an important goal as well. Yeah, it was a super important goal. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't in the Classico, was yeah, it? Yeah, it's classic. It was a Classico. It was in the Classico, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Alba, man, like that goal that he scored to win this game in fourth minute stoppage time was absolutely He clattered it. I was wild. like, you know, sometimes you hear, a, you see a volley and you're like, you were trying to burst that ball. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> but while the Joe PC mm. results from La Liga came at the top of the league, the more important results came right down oh, yeah. the bottom yeah, yeah. because Granada hammered Mallorca 6-2 in Mallorca, which was such a massive result for them because it meant that they leapfrogged Mallorca out of the relegation zone. And at this point in the season, beating a direct rival for the relegation battle 6-2 in their own backyard Psychologically. That's a statement victory, Musa. It is a statement victory. It's that the is definition. a statement victory. But also, Levante gave themselves a chance as well, beating Real Sociedad on Friday night 2-1. Uh, a 90th minute penalty for Levante. Almost given themselves slightly too much to do, but we'll see. Five point gap between them and safety. Mm. Three games to go. And their goal difference. They'd have to win all of them in hope. Yeah. Zweiter Bundesliga, quickly. Best league in the world. <laughs> yeah, that that is wild. That league. Uh, Schalke 
secured automatic promotion back into the Bundesliga. Werder Bremen had a 3-0 win away at Auer on Sunday as well. That means they only need a point in the final game to guarantee going up. But on Saturday afternoon at one point, Schalke had 59 points and everyone down to St. Pauli in fifth had 57. But after Schalke's win and Bremen's win, it kind of looks like it's going to be those two. Well, it's definitely going to be Schalke. It's probably going to be Werder Bremen. And Haas Vau look like they might. I don't want to even say this because they've been in the playoff spot before coming into the final day of the season and dropped out. It's going to be too hard for St. Pauli, I think, because they're going to have to have a huge goal swing. But it's kind of now between Darmstadt and Haasfau for the for the uh, playoff spot. Haasfau go away to Hansa Rostock. Darmstadt have Paderborn at home. In the Bundesliga, Cologne secured European football next season. And Union, they're going to be playing European football next season as well. Union absolutely hammered Freiburg in Freiburg. They took a little while, I think, to adjust to the loss of Max Kruser. Uh, to Wolfsburg, but the way they've closed is, is really impressive, actually. And they cemented themselves in the Bundesliga, which I think which is such a remarkable achievement. My European, you're not European qualification. This is, this is, they've normalized something. Back to back European qualification. <laughs> with those resources. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Huge credit to Urs Fischer again. Uh, yeah, but that puts um, RB Leipzig in charge of their own destiny now in relation to Champions League qualification. They were very impressive against Augsburg. Uh, one of their goals, they basically walked into the net yesterday. I mean, some of the combination play, I know it's Augsburg, we're not the greatest threat, um, but some of the combination play, the passing from them last night was was spectacular, actually, I've got to say. Uh, really, really impressive. And Nkunku just running the show again. Musa Kwongo, would you like to give us your Serie A roundup of the week? Oh my goodness. Okay, this is, I said it before, like Serie A is, is as Lewis Armstrong would say, is, hell's a popping. Absolutely wild. So everything happened. This was like Murphy's Murphy's League. Whatever can happen will happen. So, so Genoa first of all get a late a late late win against Juventus, who were kind of like waltzing to win one nil got one up through Dybala. So Genoa beating Juventus two one, and Juve had been like you know trying to get up on the outside rail, and Genoa were like ah uh, ah uh, uh, the football gods are not having this, not this season Juventus. Two goals in the last I think five minutes they got, including like a very last minute penalty, which is extraordinary. Um, and then elsewhere Inter were. 2-0 down, I think, against Empoli. And Empoli, are, they've been tricky. Like they've, they've lost a fair few games this year, but they've been quite spiky. And if you look at certain performances, I think Empoli have been great because they've lost a lot of games this year, but they've pushed teams really, really hard. They've kept top teams honest. Their pressing style is ferocious. Um, Inter coming back with a superb win um, from 2-0 down to 4-2 up. Lautaro Martinez is really impressive in this game. And he's someone I'm looking at for this World Cup mm. in the winter. Like, you know, we've talked so much about Messi getting help. Um, and he is peaking just at the right time for that Argentina squad. He's really, really superb. He's become the leading figure in that attack in many ways. I know Dzeko scored a lot of goals, but Martinez feels like the soul of the attack. Um, and then, so that meant that Milan had to pull something out against Verona. They went a goal down. And then Sandro Tonali, whose adjustment to life in Milan hasn't been the best, actually. It hasn't been the best. He's struggled, I think, to hold down not only just a, a place, but also some consistency. And him and Rafael Leal came up big here. They came up big. You know, we talk about on this podcast, I always go about crashing the box and the two goals that he scored, the first two goals he gets in this game that really clinch it um, for Milan, they end up winning 3-1. Very similar, like Rafael Leal just cutting down the wing and, and a one-on-one, Rafael Leal, who those who haven't watched him yet, have had the privilege to watch him. Rafael Leal is basically maybe two seasons behind Vinicius and that's no disrespect in terms of like his ability to beat a player on a one-on-one situation. He is spectacular. And I think the next two years we'll only see his star just explode into the firmament. Um, he was brilliant, two great assists. Tonali crashed the far post and Milan win 3-1. The problem for Milan is they've got to win their last two games to win this league. They're two points clear. And their last two games against Atalanta and Sassuolo. <laughs> Those are not easy fixtures. So into perhaps the marginal favourites in Serie A, but it's still looking close. In Portugal, Porto won the league after a 1-0 win over Benfica in the Clasico. Zaidu with the winner. Oh, you know, it's so funny about this. I went, to his, I went to his Twitter and it was like, oh yeah, you can find me on, I think it was like Snapchat or something. It's like really adorable. Like he's like a, a league winning left back who's like, oh yeah, you can follow me on socials. Which I thought was quite sweet. <laughs> he's doing his admin. It's really he's sweet. He's just doing the admin. Oh, it's really sweet. I thought, you know, like, yeah, you're a league winning left back. You don't have to advertise on the socials. Fourth minute stoppage time at the end of the game. And uh, we got to see Consasau smoking a cigar and doing some dad dancing after the game. He, you know, what I love. He fully committed incredible. to it. He fully committed. 
Him, he's given us maybe two of the most wholesome moments of the year. That bit with his um, son as well. Yeah. Earlier in the season, yeah, when his son scored and he went like, went wild. Um, yeah, he really pulled out the moves there. Very impressive. Just a quick shout for Nantes, who won their first French Cup in 22 years, uh, beating Amazing. Nice one on the final. So those remember the great, I'm an, I'm an old man, so remember the team, the, the great Nantes team of like Yaffet and Duran. Chad's wow. finest. Listen, Chad's finest. I just, I love that Nantes have won something this year because there have been some teams in France that because PSG block out so much of the media attention and the sunlight, mm. we don't see how much fantastic football's been played in uh, Liga. And unfortunately, a lot of that, that league has to rely on brilliant players leaving, the cl- leaving those clubs. Like, oh my God, there's actually some quality there, like Camavinga, for example, from Rennes. And Rennes actually, Rennes on occasion this year have been absolutely superb. Like, I've been lucky enough to tune on occasions when they've played some outstanding football. So I'm just really happy that Nantes, winner from Ludovic's Blass, um, get a chance to kind of mark this era with a trophy, especially when it's just so hard to like actually win something with PSG there all the time with, with all, that, all those resources. So yeah, shout out to them. Yeah, massively. Um, in the States, quickly, the North Carolina Courage won the NWSL Challenge Cup. They beat the Washington Spirit 2-1. However, the game was marred with a really, really nasty injury. There were a couple of injuries in the second half, but the worst came when Jordan Baggett collided with Dabinia. The medical crew were coming on and the, the players were in such a hurry and it was so urgent that they actually ended up running over and like sprinted the, the stretcher over. It prompted a lot of talk about a pretty regular theme in the NWSL about player welfare. There was a lot of stuff after the game in terms of like, we saw the best in terms of the football, but we also saw the worst in terms of the logistics and the player welfare and the kind of infrastructure that is around that league. Mm. Meg Linehan wrote a couple of things about it, I believe, on The Athletic, and uh, some other people wrote some pretty good stuff about that. So if you're interested in going reading more, I'd go and read more about it because it's an ongoing theme in the NWSL. We've touched on some of that stuff before. But yeah, just such a shame that this is a professional league and probably the, the league that is most set up to maintain and be professional in the US because, as we know, numerous leagues have folded over the years there. Yeah. And um, still, a number of areas which should be taken care of aren't being taken care of. Absolutely. All right, man. Oh, you know when you do the warm-up and you feel too tired to play the game? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> I know that. I my, like. my bones know that well. They know that all too well. Let's go to the Premier League. Well, before we start, many, many rumours this morning that Erling Haaland has agreed terms Yes. On his transfer to Manchester City. So we'll wait for confirmation of that and we'll touch on it. But looks like it is on. Where would you like to begin? Should we begin with Liverpool Spurs? Liverpool Spurs, yeah. Uh, Liverpool won, Spurs won. Yeah. Where would you like to begin, Musa Konga? With Spurs, I just thought they plugged every gap. But I don't say that in a kind of negative way. I mean, like Liverpool came out afterwards and I was talking about this on Twitter with a couple of people. They're going, oh, like, I think Liverpool made some really bad decisions. And Klopp came out and said it and Van Dijk came out and said it. I think Spurs forced Liverpool into bad decisions here. I think Spurs were so good at disrupting play. They were, you know, the style of football they play is so efficient. To, to do what they do, to do what Hyungman Son does on the break, on the counter, Kulosevsky, everything has to be coordinated. There's, there can't be any ways to touch. It was like watching, it was like listening to one of those sort of like, is it minimal electronic production where like everything counts, every single note matters. And Spurs from the very beginning, they began with real intensity. There'll be talk about them defending and parking the bus. Actually, the opportunities they crafted were of a high quality, in my opinion. Um, and they, you know, they, they were Anfield. They were playing at Anfield um, against a Liverpool team tearing after the league. You come out and play as open as you can, you will get absolutely torn apart. What Spurs did so well was they just, they were shock absorbers when they needed to be. Yeah. And they, they pressed forward with intent they needed to be. And I just, I just thought it was a superb performance from them. One of the best I've seen from them in a, in, a little, in a little while, actually. It seemed to be that the first half kind of went in phases. Those phases then went on to affect the rest of the game. So you had that opening, what, five, six, seven minutes, maybe? I can't remember precisely how long it was, but it was relentless Liverpool ball circulation and pressure territorially, possession-wise. I can't remember them having too many chances, but it felt really like momentum was from the, from the jump with Liverpool. And Spurs kind of looked in a little bit of trouble, actually, I think, because they just could not get out. They could not get out at all. Mm. But then they had that one break. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you realise that, oh shit, for all of this Liverpool dominance in the early stages, 
that was the most dangerous phase of play that we've seen from either side. Right. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed to be the thing that completely shifted it. It kind of threw Liverpool off their rhythm a little bit, I thought. Yeah. And maybe I'm kind of looking too much into that specific moment, like in the aftermath of it all. But it really felt like Spurs also said, also kind of felt like they didn't really need to. They were quite comfortable. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And and after that, Liverpool seemed to resort to quite surprisingly for them. And I say surprising in the sense that like, I think that's based on the levels that they've set themselves. Mm. They resorted to just being more one dimensional than I think I've seen a Liverpool side be for a little bit. But also, this is a really good Spurs team at absorbing pressure against some big sides. We've seen it this season. Spurs made them play the game they wanted them to play. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tweeted after the game, I went back and had a look on FB ref and it said that I think Liverpool averaged 14.3 crosses per game this season in the Premier League. Yeah. And in this game, they had 47. But you look where the crosses are coming from. A lot of them come from Trent, right? Yeah. And that's happening. You see, because what's happening is they're the cumulative effect of Mo Salah finding no joy because Mo Salah is running into like double or triple coverage. Like Playoff Mo. He goes down the flank. Exactly. He goes down the flank and there's one person on him and there's two people waiting for him to come. So what does he do? He cuts up because he's not, you know, because he's smart, he's a team player. He looks back and he checks back and he plays it back to Trent. Trent plays the cross in. And this is like, it's almost like Spurs were asking for this. They're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to let Mo Salah run into the corner. We'll put three men on him. We're going to cut it back. Trent's going to cross it in and then we'll head it away because we're good in the air. And we'll just like flick it away, flick it away, keep flicking it away. And that was, this was the cross they wanted. And I think what Liverpool could have done to change things was, I mean, some switches. They got Luis Diaz involved a fair amount, but I've said this before and people can come after me for saying this maybe, but like having a player like Curtis Jones, for example, that breaks lines with the ball at feet. That I think is a crucial thing because when you're passing like Tiago is and Tiago again passing beautifully, those gaps aren't there yet. So you have to get them by winning fouls, draw a yellow card, like, you know, unbalance somebody on the run. And I think there's one criticism I would make of Liverpool in this game. And I hesitate to make criticisms because they've been that good. It's just, um, you need that. And it's not like they haven't tried to find that player, Naby Keita, Oxlade-Chamberlain. These are players they've tried to develop to do this work. Harvilla, unfortunately, was injured. But that really was the one player I think they lacked. Someone to go at the absolute heart of Spurs and unbalance them, disrupt them in a one-on-one situation because Benton Court and Hoybier are just too good. They're just too good for, you can't pass through them. Like we've seen this so many times at Benton Court in Serie A. We've seen it so many times for Uruguay. Like he's just too smart already at this point of his career to play through. And that's why I think Klopp was critical of Liverpool. And they ran out of ideas, it felt against this Spurs team, which is credit to them. Slight correction. Apparently the cross quota has been corrected to 46. 46. But for that, you know, for all their, you know, their 530 completed passes to Spurs is 252. They still only had three shots on target. And so did Spurs. And Lloris, again, just being Lloris, just like when Lloris is on, he's, he's superb. Um, Apart from the Luis Diaz goal, mm. can you remember Spurs scrambling? I can't. I genuinely I can't. can't. I can't. And the way they broke, I mean, we have to just give praise to Kulosevsky. Like his technique is just, is so, so good. His touch, like it just, as an outlet, you can find him if you're in defensive context, just hoof the ball clear and he will just bring it down. But when you're attacking on the counter, you know, what he did just to, you know, I mean, he's already got like a wild amount of assists in his first few games uh, for Spurs. He just slotted right in there. Mm. And we mentioned it uh, last week, right? Yeah, remarkable. And, And just his work to create the goal for Son, um, who just, again, it's just human son. I mean, we've said this a thousand times, but top five wide forward in the world, I would say. That's, I think that's a fair, fair shout. He was superb again. Harry Kane, useful. Didn't have that much to work with, unfortunately, given the role that he was playing. But again, impressive and holding the ball up in good strength. And, you know, Conte Spurs, he's talking about there needing to be expenditure. But at this point, he's someone you trust with that expenditure, I would say. Mm. You look at the signings they brought in, Benton, Corlin, Kulisevsky, they've both been outstanding. Is he going to be there? He's giving PSG the eyes across the room. Man. Will he enjoy the coaching job as much at PSG? Probably not. That's the thing. Like he, But actually, I kind of, there's part of me that thinks he kind of will because there's more, that squad gives you more opportunities to, for conflict as a coach, I think. I, d- I just think the quality of the opposition that you face in terms of the level week in, week out in the Premier League, if they make him assurances about expenditure, which I think they should, like I think they should make those assurances because... This Spurs team, like, it's, even like with an ageing Harry Kane, like, and you know, Harry Kane's brilliant, you know, since he kind of clicked into gear this year, should be quite exciting for them. 
I mean, he's, tw- he's 28. No, but yeah, but you know, but I'm just thinking in terms of the next five years for Spurs, right? The next five years. Yeah, I just meant like in terms of infrastructure, I meant like, obviously I was just thinking ahead the next five years and thinking if you're building infrastructure for Spurs, it would be really good to get in a load of like young players now. There's something to be said for investing in this squad this summer. I mean, regardless of whether he's there or not, but I think there's also like Levy just, I don't know, just go to him and trust him with some of the money, I would say. That's my... The Poch thing is interesting because I, for example, if Spurs don't make it into the Champions League, I really suspect that Conte and, and Poch will essentially do a job swap. I mean, I would, I would love to see that. Because Poch just doesn't really seem happy in, in, in Paris. Conte doesn't really seem happy to not be playing Champions League football mm. or winning league titles. And for him, he's never won the Champions League. PSG does give you a better chance of winning the Champions League. Without question, yeah. So maybe for Conte, that's the priority and he can chalk up. Good, the, uh, good luck being. making some of those players press. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think Poch coming back to Spurs, they had such a connection with Poch. Mourinho was such a jarring experience after someone like Poch. Nuno obviously just never felt like a fit. And Conte, as, as great as he is, it still feels a little bit cold. And it feels temporary, doesn't it? It does feel temporary. It feels yeah. temporary and I, I actually think, I think for everyone... A Poch Conte job swap, I think, just makes so much sense. Yeah, that's a fair shout. That's a fair shout. But anyway, let's bring it back to the Premier League. Let's do it. It was a good result for Arsenal. It was a good result for Man City. But also, in a weird way, it was not a bad result for Spurs because out of all of the games they've got left, I think this was the one that they would probably chalk up as the one that could they could come out of it pointless. So to have a net gain already is pretty good for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. However... Because Arsenal beat Leeds 2-1, they made hard work of it. We'll do that really quickly because we don't need to go too much into it. Obviously, two goals for Eddie and Ketty at the beginning. Luke Ayling's red card on Gabriel Martinelli. Awful foul, that. Was so, I mean, I really like Luke Ayling, but that is a horror challenge. He walked off looking almost bemused by it himself. Yeah, I think he kind of knew straight away. I think Rafinha was actually quite lucky to stay on because the way that he was going after the ref, mm. after already getting booked, it was kind of gnarly. I think one of those, second half... Arsenal had plenty of the ball. They could have put a couple more chances away. They conceded the goal from a set piece. Yeah, they made harder work of it than they should have, but the result is the main thing at the end of the day. So they've opened up a gap on Spurs now, which means that a win in the North London derby on Thursday, which sounds very simple, however, it is not something that Arsenal have made a habit of doing at Spurs for a long time. That would be enough for Champions League. But the good thing about this from an Arsenal point of view just means that they don't have to win the game. You know, a point will be a really good result for them mm. on Thursday. Um, Manchester City, this was huge, actually. Putting five past Newcastle to win 5-0 because they've swung the goal difference now. Yeah, that was enormous. Yeah, yeah. There's not really much to say about this game, I don't think. I thought Jack Grealish was really good. I thought Raheem Sterling was really good. And I thought it was a little bit of a... Re- the last week or so has been a bit of a reality check for Newcastle, maybe. I was, I was expecting more resistance from Newcastle. But mm. then... We've seen, you know, we saw this all across Europe, actually. Teams that had bad results responding with absolute ferocity. I saw it in a couple of different leagues, actually. Like teams I mean, are West Ham beating Norwich 4-0 away. Oh, like, teams came out like with a real... Leipzig. Yeah, exactly. Winning 4-0. Class, yeah. exactly. Great shout. Just saw it across Europe, like teams coming out and being like, okay, we're going to like, we're going after the next one. The next team, we're going after them. I think Newcastle just weren't ready for that ferocity, that complexity of passing. Greenish has a really nice thing he does where he like... He hits a really nice pass and then he watches it like a, not, not an arrogant way, but it's like, watch, it's like a painter watching the masterpiece dry. Like he just hits that pass. And he's like, yeah, we got this. You're so much more poetic on that because I have a different approach. I, he, he strikes me as a little scamp who's just fired something out of a catapult. <laughs> and he's listening for the broken glass. He's like, there you go. There you go. <laughs> he's got a really elegant game, Grealish, actually. Really elegant. It's funny because his, his players... His physique is a certain way, right? But then like, mm. when you see his physique like that, so it's a stocky dude, and then you see him play, it's like almost like a dissonant thing. Um, yeah, that City were just very, um, really impressive and Newcastle just couldn't really, they couldn't handle that movement. Yeah, Newcastle had that, that chance at 1-0 when they had the ball in the net, it was offside and they had a couple of other chances around that period. They had that free, who was it? Had that free header at the back post. Was it Chris Wood? I don't remember. At 1-0, he went straight at Edison. So they had a couple of chances at 1-0, but as soon as City got the second, it was kind of... Yeah, it was open season. Yeah. It was it. Yeah. Obviously, there are midweek games this week as well, so I think this can... I don't think this is quite done yet, but it's very much advantage Manchester City. We'll talk a little bit more about them because they go to Wolves on Wednesday. Liverpool go to Villa. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of expecting a little bit of a slip-up somewhere. So I don't think this is quite over yet, but... We're definitely going to talk about Man City more in the next show or two. 
Chelsea in a bit of a wobble. They've got a new owner, by all accounts. LA Dodgers owner Todd. New owner, who this? Todd Burley, who um, already looked very perplexed when Connor Cody equalised at the end of the game. And I was just, I felt like just being like, welcome to the Premier League, my man. Welcome he, to the Premier League. He should have known what this was, especially one of our listeners, Oli Glanville, has talked about this a couple of times, like just a bit concerned about how sometimes Chelsea lose intensity towards the end of the season. Yeah. There's not as much to play for in the league. And... This was, a, you know, the moment for Lukaku, like two goals um, in quick succession against Wolves. I mean, look to be coasting. Lukaku obviously has had an extremely difficult season, I think it's fair to say. And really, this was a, it would have been a quite a cathartic win for him and for, for Chelsea, but it, it wasn't to be. Uh, Wolves, an impressive comeback. Lukaku is now, looking at that FA Cup final, he's, yeah, he's due a defining performance, isn't he? He's doing it's massive that game. Yeah, it is, it is. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea have got to keep one eye over their shoulder because this, this run of form is bad for them. Mm. I still think they'll finish third but they shouldn't have been in this position where it was even in the conversation that they might potentially get overtaken for third. Mm. But looking at Tuchel, he's had a really rough year. Mm. Get this season done. Get some time off because those players need a break. They need to recharge, yeah, definitely. And Tuchel needs a break, big time. It's funny because last year they were ahead of their development and this year they're behind. Yeah. If that makes sense. It's kind of even yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Almost status quo but to be honest, in terms of the takeover, like I don't anticipate that takeover being being rough and bumpy. No, I mean neither. With the quality of player that Chelsea have, the quality of player they've got returning from injury, you'll have had a rest of players who picked up injuries this year, but like Ben Chibble coming back, which will be a huge advantage for them. Obviously they're losing centre backs, but Chelsea produce talent. They've still got Chaloba there. They they produce talent, they acquire talent, they're a destination, a great destination. They're in London. I don't really worry about them in the medium term, to be honest. I really don't. No. Props to Wolves. Connor Cody after the game seemed very annoyed that everyone said they were on the beach. Mm. Maybe they can actually go and enjoy the beach very soon. <laughs> game in hand on West Ham, who are seventh, five-point gap. It's going to be tricky to overtake them, but you never know. Mm. Manchester United, West Ham and Wolves are in a very intriguing part of the league because obviously Manchester United only have one game left. They're on course for their lowest ever Premier League points tally. West Ham are three points behind them with a game in hand and a far superior goal difference and Wolves have two games in hand on Manchester United they're eight points behind him and they have the same goal difference so we'll talk about Manchester United in a minute but before we do quick shouts to Brentford who beat Southampton 3-0 they're pretty much guaranteed to stay up now that's Thomas just Frank a great piece of coaching it's amazing Southampton is someone else who just need, just need the season to be done mm. and regroup uh, Villa put Burnley in trouble beating, beating them 3-1 away uh, Steven Gerrard said it was their best away performance of the season. They really delivered. They were really impressive, actually. They've done, you know, they've had, Villa have been, I think, outstanding in patches as opposed to entire games, I think, in the last couple of months. But when they've, mm. been, when they've clicked, they've been really, really encouraging and exciting. Everton beating Leicester 2-1 away. And the reason I'm just rounding these results off, mm. Palace beating Watford 1-0, because I want to talk about the relegation battle. Watford relegated from the Premier League. Roy Hodgson is going to, retire again and that man deserves every bit of rest quiet life I don't think this is hugely surprising from a Watford point of view they have been a little bit overly chaotic the fact that like Munoz got sacked so early in the season which I thought was a really odd decision mm. and it kind of just set the tone for the entire season like Ranieri coming in having a couple of games where he got good results that everyone was just like oh my god this is it and then that obviously not working. Hodgson coming in and hasn't really, I mean, he, what, they were 19th when he took over? That's a big ask for someone who was already yeah. retired, I think. What do you think about this? Because obviously Norwich have gone down as well. Mm. Is it only 14 seasons Watford have spent in the top flight? And I think about half, just less than half of those have come under the current ownership. But these two clubs, I think this summer, weirdly more than the last times that they've been relegated, they've got decisions to make. But we've talked about Norwich a little bit, so should we maybe focus on Watford? I think I would just say with Watford and Norwich, they're two teams that have gone down in very different ways. Yeah. Like Watford goes down with the hire and fire. Norwich goes down, all hands on deck. There's a problem with recruitment as well. Like when you're stuck between leagues, it's funny because you look at the Zweite Bundesliga, right? You've got Simon Terode, who scores loads of goals in the second division, but goes up to the Bundesliga when he, and, he, and he loses his magical powers of goals because the, the same gaps don't appear. You look at Norwich, you look at Watford and it's difficult because the players that get you out of the championship don't necessarily keep you up. 
And they're both stuck in that difficult position of recruitment where if you're going for like, you know, if, if, if you look at Watford and Norwich, I'm interested in the players they haven't signed. I'm interested in the fact that you know, for every Emmanuel Dennis you get, which is a massive coup for Watford considering the clubs that would have been after him, mm-hmm. there are so many other clubs where like they would have poached players for the Watford would have wanted and Norwich would have wanted. So I don't know if there is a kind of quick and easy answer to this because unfortunately, I think there's a bracket of clubs that are kind of destined to get up, struggle and go down again unless something dramatic happens, whether it's an injection of ownership income, because these aren't, these are good coaches that get these teams up. I suppose the real thing that has to happen in the summer, I think maybe Watford could criticise was not making the acquisitions early enough to bed and have a pre-season with the players and like get the training sorted. But I guess I, I have no quick fixes. Kind of, I'm sympathetic to them, actually. Watford less so because of the whole AFCON stuff. And I think they handled that really badly, actually. I think a lot of that was, was, not, um, was not ideal. Nor- Norwich more, Norwich, Norwich more, so, more so, yeah. Norwich I think we, so, yeah. Norwich really tried to do the Burnley model mm. with Daniel Farker and kept with him when they went down and stuck with that process. But they just could not adapt for the Premier League. Mm. With Watford, I think that Munez, Ranieri, Hodgson in a single season mm. shows that there isn't really a huge amount of joined up thinking there. Mm. This year, probably more so than recent years, because there haven't been so many players like Deeney that have that real connection with, with the fan base as well. I think mm. it's felt that I think, and I might be wrong, but I get the impression that Watford as a club feels a little bit further away from the fans than it has done at other times when they've gone down. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. This process, I don't know. We've seen with Brentford, for example, who have had bumps in the road this season. They went on a dreadful run and could mm. have very easily, if they'd had a more trigger-happy ownership, yeah, yeah. They could have potentially fired Thomas Frank at one point this season. We, mm. we, there were a few podcasts when we were kind of going to bat for him a little bit. If that was Watford, I genuinely think he would have been fired. That's interesting, actually. The dip they had. Yeah, because they, they, they had a they mega really dip. They had a mega dip. But the season is 38 games long. After seven games, when you've won two of them and you've just been promoted, that is not a time to fire. But that really did set the tone for the season. I think if what like Watford... They do have some Premier League pedigree in recent years. They might never push for Europa League qualification via the league. But actually, if you said in five years' time, Watford hired a coach the season they went down in 2022. They got back to the Premier League the season after, after bossing the championship. Tell me, tell me if any of this sounds no, unthinkable, no, 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 right? Just, no, no, they no, boss the championship, you. they go up, they recruit really well. They finish maybe 16th, 15th the first season back. They then finished 12th the season after. It's all incremental. Like, for example, I think Brentford are overperforming for their resources this season massively. They should have been absolutely nailed on to go down, Brentford. I think a lot of clubs who make it to the Premier League semi-regularly, they take for granted the rewards of being in the Premier League and they don't utilise them to the max. Mm. Watford, I'm not saying it's a complete failure that they're not in still in the Premier League but I think more so than a couple of other sides who have stayed up recently I think Watford have had the opportunities to do so they're a club of modest ambitions compared to a number of others in the Premier League but still for some reason this year feels a little bit different I think because there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of strategic thinking at the club well this is what I mean we're going to come on to Brighton anyway I don't like to do that anyway if that's okay before we do that, obviously Leeds are in the relegation zone because of They're Everton. in much bigger trouble than I thought they'd be in. Everton much won bigger. back-to-back games in the Premier League for the first time since Musa Okwonga for 10 points. Oh God, was it United one of the teams they beat? <laughs> what, September? September, they won a game. Oh my God, it was September. 28th of August, they beat Brian 2-0 away. 13th of September, they beat Burnley 3-1 at home. and. They haven't won back to the back to back games in the Premier League since then until. So we get my ten points. Oh, there we you go. Get your ten points. Yeah, I want to say that, that that's a really big, big look for Everton. We looked at their run and then thought that was super tough. But to take, I mean, six points six from six points, Chelsea at from home, Chelsea and Leicester, and Leicester away. It's big. It's big. Leeds are in big trouble. Yeah, so I must admit I didn't see that coming, but that's. Uh... I didn't either. Everton go to Watford, who obviously are down. Burnley go to Spurs next. Leeds host Brighton, Everton host Brentford, Everton host Palace. Everton looking a hell of a lot safer all of a sudden. Leeds on the final day go to Brentford. So I still think it's too close to call because Burnley host Newcastle United. I, my, if, if someone was like, make a decision, jump off the fence right now, I think my gut would say Burnley and I don't know why. 
Burnley, Burnley for the drop. they're in more trouble. But it's just too close to call. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so let's wrap on Brighton 4, Manchester United 0. Brighton's biggest ever top flight win in their history. Against the team that beat them 4-0 in the 1983 Cup final. FA oh, Cup final. for narrative. Yeah, absolute narrative. And I think just something about this game. So that the danger with this game is that it will be overshadowed by Manchester United's decline. But what this is, and David Hartrick, shout out to him on Twitter after the game, I congratulated him on a great win. And he said, it just felt like just a great win by a good team over a bad team, which United are at the moment. And he was so excited. He just said like, this is, um, I think he tweeted out, this is the best Brighton team I've seen in my lifetime. And the way they played, there were so many superb individual performances. I suppose Trossard, Gross and Caicedo were maybe the pick. Solly March is excellent, reliable, again, just so creative. Cucurella too. Cucurella, ah. Cucurella is a great player. Someone I really, really enjoyed watching, um, I think for Catafe in La Liga. It was outstanding there, really exciting. Came to the ranks at Barcelona, I think, and just a great player. And when he scored his goal, his reaction was so beautiful. Like, I think it was his mm. first goal for Brighton. and. He was just in tears. They did like, he did a heart shape with his hands and the crowd just, you know, roared. Uh, it was beautiful. But the way that Brighton pressed, counterattacked, passed, the way that Potters just got them primed for the arrival of a new striker, Dennis Undav, arriving in the summer, but they're already just clicking in such an impressive way. I think Graham Potter's the kind of coach that other coaches talk about privately. I think he's someone that comes up in quite a lot of conversation as, yeah, I really like what they did against us. You know, I really like the way they set up where they countered, the way they defended. There was a bit where, I think it was one of their goals where, um, I don't know if they scored from it, but McTominay gets the ball and they just three players descend upon him and there's just mm. no passing options available for him. We can criticise United for that. At the same time, it's like, they've obviously identified him as a player and the ball comes into his feet and he turns. They'll take a touch too many and they swarm him. And they're really, really good, Brighton, not just in this game, but generally at identifying pressure points yeah. um, of teams, of opposing teams. And we joke about the XG thing and how like, you know, Brighton basically are like always a, a team that has a higher XG than their opponents. But that's just really, it speaks to what we're saying about Watford. Like That's done from love though. No, no, it's, of course it's done, it's done from, of course it's done from love. And the reason why I like that you mention it all the time is because we talked before about Watford not maximising resources. Brighton are absolutely a club, a squad that maximises what it has. The performances they're getting from those players, there's no disrespect to these players at all. It's like, these players are all playing to their absolute potential. Like, I, I just love the fact that Danny Welbeck has found a home as an elder statesman leading the line. You know, he was always a very fluid player in terms of his movement. Um, he can drop deep. He can, he can go to the flanks. He can, he can crash the box. You know, he had all the tools to be an elite striker. It didn't quite work out for him, you know, for various reasons, confidence, injury, whatever and maybe a slight ruthlessness that he lacked early in his career. But watching this Brighton team now, you talked about Watford and a club that didn't feel like a family club or a club that was unified or happy you know, in relation to Spurs, maybe. Brighton is a club that just feels aligned. You know, it feels aligned on and off the field. Um, and it feels happy. And despite even the league, you know, the, the fact that I think they're 10th now on the table, I mean, that's impressive enough. Brighton, yeah, ninth. ninth. I mean, they're ninth. I mean, that's impressive enough, but... Beyond that, they've achieved like, like happiness. I think the sense. thing that we were talking before about Watford as well is just the stability because there were mm. <laughs> there were whispers around Graham Potter. Mm. Anecdotally, a number of fans of clubs on Twitter who had been linked with him were kind of looking when they struggled and they went on that run of games when they just that um, run of straight defeats was like February maybe and a couple of other points in the season where they dropped really low in the league and a lot of people were kind of like mm, is the hype actually real mm. and yet again much like with Thomas Frank at Brentford and much like other clubs the faith in the process which sounds really cheesy and throwaway and quite cliche but it is really really important because hiring and firing a little too swiftly can really derail stuff and have effects like deep into the future you don't realise because you have turnover of staff you have a turnover of process you have you never really know if the chemistry is going to be there and I think the Premier League is such a tough league to maintain consistent finishes in it means that you can finish 7th one year and then 12th the next year and actually that's because of the, the overall quality or the comparative quality in the league 
And I think for Brighton to start really showing signs that the incremental progress that they've made under Graham Potter is actually paying dividends in terms of points tallies and big wins and stuff like that. Mm. And it's going, to make, it's going to make them an attractive destination again for players because this is where the Premier League has an advantage over many, many other leagues. They can pay clubs throughout the whole league, even if you've just come up, you can pay way more handsomely than even some of the sides pushing European qualification in other leagues around Europe. It's so wealthy that if you do have the process, and this is where I think a little bit of my frustration with Watford comes in, or not frustration necessarily, but you know, disappointment, you've got way more of an advantage than so many other leagues around Europe to progress or at least solidify, but it has to be accompanied by a process, and that's what Brighton have done, Yeah, I think, almost impeccably well. When you actually looked at the football that was being played on Saturday, you would have thought that Brighton were the team with the budget that Manchester United has had over the last oh, few abso- years. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There was a moment, uh, Sanchez, I've got to say this, Sanchez in goal for Brighton, his distribution is is brilliant. And that there's a ball that he hits um, that Varane struggles to bring down, which leads to a, you know, a crucial breakthrough for Brighton. And just watching that was so interesting because in one moment you're looking at going, this isn't just a long ball forward, that, that's targeting a particular weakness. You know, you'll know Potter will be like, he doesn't like that kind of ball. He'll have to turn onto it, put it in that gap and make him deal with it. Like that wasn't just a kind of hoof forward. That's a, a targeting. And watching Varane struggle like he did against Brighton was really a sign of how far, and we know that Varane was struggling at Real Madrid before he left, but it was a sign of almost a symbol for how far Manchester United have fallen because peak Rafael Varane, that does not bother him at all. It doesn't bother him at all. And you look at Manchester United now and you talk about leadership in the squad and all the rest of it, but really just the cumulative failure of recruitment, individual performances, you know, Rangnick has struggled to get that going. And, you know, Rangnick talking as frankly as he does, he's always been quite frank in his, mm. in his statements, but it's almost like he looks at that and is like, I don't think people fully understand the level of dysfunction at play here. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very, very difficult uh, dressing room to deal with. There are players leaving. There was a moment, quite a poignant moment when Paul Pogba was being linked to Manchester City, which apparently he's turned down now. But the wild thing about that move was, I remember thinking, my goodness, if Pogba goes to Manchester City, I don't even feel it's that controversial because Pogba has not, Pogba's time at United, I think is, you know, it's, it's not been what the player or the club would have hoped. Pogba is not identified enough with iconic Manchester United moments for him to move to City and for that to be oh my goodness, what a massive betrayal. And that, that the Paul Pogba-like transfer and how Pogba's been used, all of that, it's basically like a wasted, it's been a wasted few years, to be honest. I, and if you look at like, because the reason why I was excited from a footballing perspective for Pogba to go somewhere like Manchester City, from a footballing perspective, and it sounds like heresy, but I was saying it on the podcast, but if 2015 Paul Pogba had worked under Pep, we would have seen a player, I think, who's consistently top 10 Ballon d'Or. I think. I just think in terms of what he has, I think some players more di- need more direction than others. And I just think the lack of coordination coaching United the last few years has just been, it's been abysmal. And I think, when I, and I say cumulative, I know they've, they've had some high finishes, they've won trophies, but I mean the overall effect of that. And I said this on Twitter, I'll say it again, if you're going to spend that much money on an institution, you may as well make it one that actually creates joy and not misery. For a, substantial number, for a substantial number of people involved. And United have spent, what, hundreds of millions? And what have they produced in terms of joy? Very little. Yeah, I yeah. agree, man. Yeah. But, back, but just to say, back to Brighton, because I don't want to make this about United. I want to kind of just close that segment, from my perspective at least, with just saying what a superb achievement that was by Brighton at the weekend. Um, a superb victory. I think it was the last home game. They've got West Ham on the last day of the season at home. So West Ham, okay. So... What a wonderful way to round off that campaign because there was a lot of chat about them coming into the season. Like, you know, could they maintain standards? How would they do? And a signature performance to round off, well, to almost round off a great campaign for them. I mean, January 2021, Graham Potter announced that he was ditching the tracksuit and smartening (laughs) up his touchline attire. (laughs) And in the first full season that he's done so, Brighton are on course for their highest ever top flight finish. Listen, the drip, does, I mean, the drip doesn't I'm lie. Not saying, I'm not saying the two are related, but, you know, they're related. I reckon we get out of here. Let's do it. Let's bounce. Don't forget, Righty's House is back on Wednesday. We'll touch on the WSL stuff there. We'll have Chloe Kelly on from Man City, and we'll also have Callum Jacobs on to talk about his new book, which Musa has written in. 
Stadio will be back late this week as well. For now, don't forget to check the ringer.com forward slash soccer. Don't forget to check the Stadio out just placed on Spotify. And on that note, playing out on. Because it's that time of the season, Musa, when whether you're fighting a relegation battle, whether you're fighting European qualification, whether you're fighting trophies. Or just fighting the human condition. Okay, I mean, that took a turn. <laughs> but what everyone needs to do at this point of the season is reach for their own star. So we're playing out on Sharon Reveal, reaching for our star. Reach for your stars, everyone. Listen. There's How a about that for some Monday, hashtag Monday motivation. <laughs> reach for your stars. Anything you want to add, Musa Kwanga? Nothing further. I mean, to be honest, how can you talk about that? I'm not <laughs> <Nothing> sure. Nothing <laughs> further, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, much love. We'll be back later in the week. See you then. Sail the heavens afar.